0: This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Our first reading comes from Luke 10, verses 25 to 34. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The second reading comes from Romans 7, verses 7 to 25. Oh, verse 35. Apologies. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Which of these do you think was a neighbour to the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him? Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The second reading is from Romans 7, 7 to 25. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me, every kind of coveting. But apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. As we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is here right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretch of man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Janine. The mastermind behind the Marvel comics, Stan Lee, inspired by Frankenstein and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, created Bruce Banner, or the Hulk, for his Marvel universe. His character, Dr. Bruce Banner, was accidentally exposed to gamma radiation while saving the life of a colleague. And after this incident, the normally physically weak, socially withdrawn, and reserved physicist would, when enraged, turn to a green-hulking, muscular humanoid possessing a limitless degree of physical strength. Banner, whenever he was stressed or emotionally provoked, would struggle to contain this split personality. And he would turn into Hulk, uh, and he would smash through anything and everything in his way, including buildings. It was roid rage on steroids. Both would resent one another. It seems the Hulk would always be lurking within Banner. Though the Christian has a new identity, a new allegiance, a new master, and a new set of desires, at the same time, we experience an ongoing struggle with sin. Yes, we've been justified through faith, that is, we've been declared right in God's sight, through God's gracious provision of Jesus Christ, through a simple act of trust. We've already heard that in Romans, we are united to Christ. We have died to sin, and we are now alive with Christ. What a wonderful truth. We are no longer slaves to sin, but rather we serve the living God. But at the same time, there is something lurking within one at odds with who we are in Christ, one at odds with what we want to do in love and devotion of our Lord. We want to serve our God and please him. There's a struggle, a frustration that's experienced in the life of a believer, an inner battle like that of Banner and Hulk. And Paul's agonizing confession encapsulates this experience And it's one that resonates with us all. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not do, do not want to do, this I keep on doing. But Paul begins his discussion in Romans 7 centered upon the law. And he says some pretty controversial things about the law. That is the law of Moses given in the Old Testament. But there's something revolutionary in what he's saying. We have died to the law's condemnation. If you're following the outline, we've been released from the law. The old code of the law no longer condemns us to death. It no longer stands over us. Jesus, through his death on the cross, has released us from it. And so we are now set free to live with his spirit changing us from within, giving us new desires, new dispositions, and enabling us to serve him and please him. God said, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. Quoting from Jeremiah 31, this was a promise long ago. The Spirit changes us from within, writing God's law in our hearts, God's love, The love of God and the love of others. As Paul will say later in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. Love is the fulfillment of the law. But in this section, perhaps his most controversial statement is Romans 7, 5. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, he's saying, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. The law aroused sinful passions that that led to us, led to death? Paul, are you saying that the law given by God, God's law through his servant Moses is, is bad, even, even sinful? And so Paul anticipates this argument in verse 7. He responds, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Do not hear me saying it is sinful. We know it is not. What I'm trying to say, though is that the law is powerless in the face of sin, which brings me to the next point in Paul's argument, the powerlessness of the law in the face of sin. And we see that the law actually exposed and exacerbated sin. Firstly, the law exposed sin. From verse 7, Paul says, I would not have known what sin was had it not been the law. You see, He gives the example of coveting. The law exposes and shines a light. It names what is wrong and not pleasing in God's sight. So firstly, the law exposes sin sin for what it is. Secondly, the law exacerbated sin from verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law... Sin was dead. This commandment, instead of restraining him, restraining sin, produced all kinds of coveting. If I were to illustrate this a while ago, uh, my daughter discovered that she was not allowed to play with the dishwasher. I gave her the commandment, Thou shalt not touch the dishwasher. I would say no when she tried to open it, climb in it, or, or pick the food scraps from it. She understood no quite early on, but she also understood that she didn't need to follow Daddy's rules all the time. I found the more that I told her not to play with the dishwasher, the more she wanted to play with it. She just looks at you and smiles and slowly reaches for it. Recently, the toilet brush has been her toy of choice. Forbidden fruits can be the sweetest. Daddy, why are you depriving me from this toy? And in verse 9, when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. The law, instead of restraining sin, brought forth more sin. But the law is holy, righteous, and good. This is a fact that Paul states. He doesn't need to defend this point. The law is holy, righteous, and good. You know this. And in verse 12, the law is holy, so it's not sinful. But the point he's making here is that the law is powerless to change. And in verse 13, sin is is this threatening evil. It's so bad. It's so bad, it can turn and use something good, holy, and righteous, like the law, for evil like a virus that infects through a good and healthy cell host in order to bring about death. The problem is not the law, the problem is me. I am fleshly. Paul next describes his experience. But more specifically, he's describing something that's true of the human condition. Human beings are characterized by a fleshliness. We exist in a mortal body. He almost uses these terms synonymously. Because of sin living in us, our bodies are characterized by death. In verse 14, he says, We know that the law is spiritual. He's he's addressing the, the Christians in Rome. We know, we know this law that God has given us. It's good and holy and righteous, and it's spiritual. But I am unspiritual. I am fleshly, sold as a slave to sin. What's Paul doing here? Follow this argument carefully. Paul is defending himself while pointing the finger at himself as the problem. He's defending himself against the accusation that he degrades God's law. No, it is spiritual. The law is good. The law is not the problem. I am. The law is spiritual. I am the problem. I am fleshly. And this fleshly reality means that I cannot, on my own, keep the law of God. And sinners, as you would know, sin has plagued the human race right from the very beginning with Adam. And our bodies are fleshly. Paul, as a Christian, has the spirit in him. His, the spirit is at work in him and wants him to do good. God's grace is at work in him. But there's another aspect to him where sin operates. He is fleshly. Now, this is different from being in the flesh, which he, which he spoke about early in chapter 7, verse 5, where he says we are no longer in the realm of the flesh. The flesh is no longer our identity, or our affiliation. Our being united with Christ is. But, you see, our bodily capacities are affected by sin. We are fleshly. And so Paul highlights this ongoing struggle, this inner struggle that's going on for him. In in verse 15, For what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And he summarizes it in verse 21. So I find this law at work in me. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner, inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making a, me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. You see what he's saying here? As much as the Spirit of God is working in, in me to delight in God's law and hate sin, There's a part of me that desires it and wants it. Yes, I've been freed from the power of the law, sin and death, but sin continues to exert its influence. This struggle that Paul is experiencing is a wrestling with sin rather than just the giving into it. It's a grieving of one's condition, being exposed to sin. This struggle is a sign of spiritual life. The spirit of God is at work in my my life, giving me the strength to struggle. The spirit of work is, is at work in my inner being. And this is why the law is incapable of changing us. Our fleshly condition means we have no willpower in ourselves. The pull of the flesh is too much. What we need is a spiritual renovation, the Spirit to change us, to renew our minds and wills, to seek, to delight in God's ways. Now, it's important to note that, as I've already um, been speaking on, that the Christian life is lived in the body, a body of death, a mortal body. And Paul is able to speak about this earlier in in Romans chapter 6, Verse 12, he says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. He's speaking to the Christians in Rome. Don't let this sin reign in your mortal body. And in and in and in Romans 8:10, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death, this body of death, because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And in and in verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. You see, this freedom from sin that we see in chapters 6 and 8 isn't total. Believers continue to battle against sin's reign, as, we, as we've heard in chapter 6, verse 12, and we are to instructed to put to death the evil desires of the body. In chapter 8, verse 13, like a computer virus that has infected its host, nothing but a complete wipe of your computer will do to restore it. And so likewise, sin has infected us. We are fleshly. We continue to live in mortal bodies such that nothing but the full redemption of our bodies on resurrection morning will remove us of this virus. Which is why Paul ends in Romans uh, 7, verse 24 to 25. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's a future redemption of our bodies, and it won't be realized until resurrection morning. But thanks be to God, it is coming. But now we are caught in this painful reality. Our bodily condition hasn't caught up with who we are in Christ yet. One of the messages that they give in Alcoholics Anonymous is that you you need to always remember you're an alcoholic, even when you haven't had a drink for years. And there's something right about that. The struggle will always be with you. But that's not the full story, as we'll see next week, that God's spirit enables us to live for him. We are assured and comforted, though we have this struggle, There is a sure and certain hope. God's spirit reassures us and testifies to us that we are God's children. But notice, even in in, in chapter 8, verse 23, we will continue to groan inwardly as we await the redemption of our bodies. There's so much more that I can say about Romans 7. I wrote an essay in college about it. It's it's it's, It's a hobby horse of mine. No, not hobby horse. Passion of mine. I've, uh, and so I barely scraped the surface, but what are the implications, if we ever think about it? This is, uh, firstly, not a license to sin. At no point does Paul say that, and neither does it indicate we should not take our sins seriously. In fact, holiness, righteousness, uh, uh, holiness and righteous living are very serious, uh, are taken very seriously. Indeed, there needs to be uh, a, a progress. Defeatism is not implied here. Neither is it uh, talking about wild sins. Paul isn't implying that. He, he seems to be talking about this internal desire, and he gives the example of covetousness, and, and it would seem to suggest this. And I don't think in any of Paul's letters does he suggest that since becoming a Christian, he's committed these grave and wild sins. Of course, these are sins nonetheless, though, and are to be taken very seriously as Jesus. Indicated, even on the heart level. If you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. If you hate someone, you've already committed murder in your heart. And my third implication, the Christians struggle against sin. Christian history has been full of people who have claimed a secret to reach a higher life, a second blessing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or whatever it is. J.O. Packer, the late Anglican theologian, tells of his encounter with this kind of movement that emphasised the victorious life of living free of sin. And he tells the story of how it almost destroyed him spiritually. He was a young Christian in his first term at university when he was thoroughly converted. He quotes, he was conscious of Christ's redeeming love and his personal call. And he, and he was connected to this group, and the group nurturing me, he described, was pietistic in style. And they left me in no doubt that the most important thing for me as a Christian was the quality of my walk with God, in which, of course, they were entirely right. But they were also somewhat elitist in spirit. I was being told this. There are two sorts of Christians, first class and second class, spiritual and carnal. The former... No, sustained peace and joy, constant inner confidence, and regular victory over temptation and sin, in a way the latter do not. He was being told that, of this secret, this secret to, to scrape your inside figuratively speaking, to let go and let God was the catch cry, and you will attain this higher spiritual life. And Packer, as a, as a sensitive and introspective young man, was almost broken spiritually as he was unable to attain this victorious life. And it wasn't until the group was given an old clergyman's library that they stumbled across the old Puritan, John Owen, in his book, The Mortification of Sin. After reading this book, he described it as God's chemo for his cancered soul. He said, Owen, showed me my inside, my heart, as no one had ever done before before. And it's why when we gather like this, that we confess our sins weekly in our gatherings, we all say it. It's even in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught it. He said, forgive us our sins in the Lord's Prayer. Notice it's in the plural. Sins. Sorry, our sins. It's a corporate prayer. A preacher once said from the pulpit, if you knew my sin." You would never listen to me. The congregation was shocked. But he said, if I knew your sin, I would never speak to you. There's something right about that. Now, it's important that we don't think this is saying everything about the Christian life. There are immense joys and privilege, and so much of it we've already seen and unpacked in the book of Romans. But there is a realism here. The Christian life is one of ongoing struggle. And so what are we to do? Here was John Owen's answer, summarized by J.I. Packer in essence: have the holiness of God clear in your mind. Remember that sin desensitizes you to itself. Watch that is prepared to recognize it. Search it out within you by disciplined, Bible-based, spirit-led self-examination. Focus on the living Christ. Focus on him and his love for you on the cross. Pray. Pray asking for strength to say no to sin suggestions and to fortify yourself against bad habits by instead forming good ones contrary to them. And ask Christ to kill the sinful urge you are fighting. He asked the question, does it work? Yes. Nearly 70 years on, I can testify to that. Packer, of course, has since entered into glory. Brothers and sisters, may we, with the Spirit's enabling, may we continue to put to death sin and live for Christ until our struggle is over in the redemption of our bodies. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening.